0: Have you heard? Have you heard? Have
1: you heard? Have you heard? Have Have you heard? heard? Have you heard? Welcome to Have You Heard? I'm Jennifer Berkshire.
2: And I'm Jack Schneider.
1: And Jack, you and I are both in Massachusetts, which happens to be the state in which what? Three-letter organization was founded. <laughs>
2: um, the DAR. Bzz. Uh, the VFW. Bzz. This is going to be a long episode. Um, the uh, the AFL. Bzz. The CIO.
1: All right, I'm going to give you a hint. Are you ready? Yeah. Junior Mintz.
2: <laughs> <laughs> You know I like Junior Mints. I do. But I don't know if you know that I know that Robert Welch was the, well, I think it was actually his brother had the, they had two candy companies. He had a candy company. His brother had a candy company. I think Robert Welch's candy company went out of business and it was his brothers that made the Junior Mints. But that's how Robert Welch made his money. You didn't know this, did you? And he then used his, money. I think he was in Belmont, Mass. Uh, I think he was an elected school committee member. Our listeners are like, where is this going? Uh, And then he created the John Birch Society, which up until recently was probably America's most famous far-right conspiracy-minded organization that, you know, has influenced grassroots politics, I think.
1: Okay, so first of all, I had no idea that you had actually done your homework, so (laughs) kudos.
2: (laughs) Kudos is a different candy. It's not even a candy. It's a a granola bar, technically.
1: So listeners who are still listening after that somewhat dizzying opening.
2: Dizzying with how edifying it was, you meant meant to say.
1: You're probably picking up on the fact that this episode is about the John Birch Society, and you would be right.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Congratulations. Your powers of deduction are undiminished.
1: So Jack, once again, we're going to be talking about a book that I happen to be really excited about, and I think that listeners will be too. It feels like it is just absolutely ripped from the headlines, even though it's a history.
2: Yeah. And for those of us of a particular age, uh, which I think includes both of us uh, on this end of the microphone, where I guess our listeners aren't on the other end of a microphone. But but anyway, you get where I'm going. Um, you know, I heard my father talk about the John Birch Society in in really exasperated uh, tones. And I had no idea what he was talking about because the John Birch Society meant nothing politically in the 1980s, 90s. I mean, maybe a tiny bit in during the Reagan administration. But he, of course, had been... Know just absolutely outraged by birchers in the sixties and seventies, particularly those in California. My father did not ever want to set foot in Orange County. He his blood pressure spiked, and he would drive erratically as we drove on the four hundred five through Orange County. And I swear it was entirely because of the John Birch Society. And and now now we kind of have our own experience uh, with groups like Moms for Liberty, uh, or, you know, I guess you could say whatever the vestiges of the Tea Party still are, right, that they made a kind of play for the Birchian mantle there. But absolutely, there's an important history that is um, kind of evergreen in American politics.
1: Well, I would imagine that listeners are probably pretty eager to meet the author and find out what the book is.
2: (laughs) All right, let's go.
1: now to the main event. Our special guest is Matthew Dalek. He's an historian and the author of a terrific new book, Birchers, How the John Birch Society Radicalized the American Right. Now, chances are the Birch Society does not loom large for you, unlike Jack's father. So here's a little refresher. It was started in 1958. By a group of right wing businessmen who'd basically been mad since the New Deal. They claim that the country was in the grips of a vast communist conspiracy that posed an existential threat to Christianity, capitalism, and the country. And Dalek says that one of the key things that we need to understand about the Birchers is that they weren't crazy,
0: they were quite rational. They understood modern politics. They were, of course, often professionals and educated suburbanites. They were, in many ways, atop the capitalist economy. Three of the founders of the Birch Society were former presidents of the National Association of Manufacturers, one of the most influential lobbying groups. These were not people off in a corner talking to themselves or irrational. And not all of them bought into these conspiracy theories. If some did, others didn't. So I argue, you know, they're rational. They understood modern technology, modern culture. They worked as doctors and dentists, small business owners. What drove them was a set of ideas under the rubric of communism.
1: Dalek's book is a gripping read, and one thing that immediately leaps out is just how groups today, like, say, Moms for Liberty, are essentially echoing the language and the tactics that the Birchers embraced 65 years ago.
0: The ideas are what I think a lot of people on the far right, uh, both then and today, see as a defense of morality, really a, a Christian version that's particular to them and a version of the Constitution, as they define it, and of freedom, as they define it. And that then gets imposed, at least in part, in libraries. It gets fought over in schools, bookstores, the media. And the other thing is that the Steve Bannons and the Moms for Liberty members of the world, they have an insight, which the Birchers also had, which was that you don't just wage politics through the two-party system, although that can be valuable. You've got to do it through mass education.
1: In case you were wondering why we're discussing the John Birch Society on an education podcast, there's an easy and obvious answer. The Birchers saw themselves as an education group, informing the nation about the depths of the communist conspiracy, and that required taking back the public schools.
0: And the Birchers, first and foremost, understood themselves as a mass education group, that they were going to expose the alleged communists inside the United States, right, the internal threat, and they were going to teach the American public about this threat. And how do you teach? Well, through the schools and libraries and books and media. So even though some of the issues have changed, about transgender identity and rights and LGBTQ issues, the themes and the arguments that they're making, I think, are very similar.
1: Reading Dalek's book, I often had the feeling that I had mistakenly entered a time machine. Take, for example, an argument that we're hearing a lot these days. The United States is a republic, not a democracy.
0: The Birch Society had a slogan. They had a lot of slogans, but one of their most prominent slogans was, we're a republic, not a democracy, and let's keep it that way. What does that mean? I do think it probably meant different things to different birchers. To some, I think it meant the desire to impose their particular kind of Christian version of a moral order on the public space and public institutions. That would include the schools, the libraries, the kind of textbooks, you know, the Americanist teachings that they wanted to see all around them. To others, relatedly, It meant opposition to civil rights, opposition to multiracial democracy, who should get access to the ballot box. I mean, it was no accident that the Birchers were coming into their own and and had that slogan actually with the civil rights movement on the rise as well.
1: The founder of the John Birch Society, as you already heard from Jack at the beginning of the show, was a candy maker based in Belmont, Massachusetts. Robert Welch joined forces with his brother after his first candy-making venture failed. The James O. Welch Company, which made pom-poms and other sweet treats, was fabulously successful. Robert Welch ended up both very rich and very bitter about the New Deal about government regulation, and above all, about the state of democracy in the U.S.
0: Welch denounced democracy as a tyranny of the mob or the masses. And I think what they meant by that was that their conception of individual rights and liberty, right, moms for liberty in in the rhetoric of today, that their conception was being trampled by this emerging multiracial democracy. And the majority will, as opposed to the rights of states to discriminate if they want to discriminate, the rights of individuals and their businesses to discriminate on racial or religious or ethnic grounds. They saw that as an assault on the constitutional liberties that people had. I think in the slogan, it actually was quite powerful slogan because people could put onto it different things For some, let's say, Birch member who was running to take over a PTA, it could mean we need to be teaching Americanist texts, and I need to decide that. And these texts are not acceptable. They're communistic. And to others, it could mean arguing that civil rights is not an organic American movement. It's actually trampling on individual liberties. You know, I think it was a real insight that they had, and it was one reason that made them effective for at least for a time.
1: And it isn't just the animating ideas that make this history so relevant right now. The Birchers also learned key lessons that groups like Moms for Liberty are implementing today. If you're in a community that has been upended by school culture wars, you've seen one of these lessons firsthand.
0: The idea, first of all, that a relatively small number of activists devoted to a cause— can have an impact greater than potentially millions of voters, especially at the local level. Because a board of education or a PTA, governing bodies of school districts, that were seen as civic institutions and not especially polarizing or partisan. But if you could take them over, right, or, or make inroads, well, you can control potentially what books are put on the shelves. Or even if you don't win a battle against, let's say, a particular teacher who you think is, is socialist, well, you can kind of hound that teacher and force that teacher to leave that school eventually, which, which happened in many cases. By waging it as a war of education, they were able to make, I think, inroads and put issues onto the agenda in the 1960s that may not have otherwise been on the agenda.
1: So lesson one, you don't need a mass movement in order to have an impact. Members of the group successfully injected hot-button cultural issues like patriotic education, moral library books, prayer in schools, and ending sex education into local debates. Another key lesson, when it comes to education movements, women make powerful organizers. Long before Moms for Liberty or Mama Bears or Parents Defending Education, women were on the front lines of the Birch Society's crusade against the communist conspiracy. Even though they weren't always taken seriously.
0: In some ways, they were dismissed at the time as, quote, little old ladies in tennis shoes, which was a well-known quote from the era. And it was quite dismissive, actually, in kind of sexist and ageist condescension. But the women were actually the kind of backbone at the chapter level who were doing a lot of the groundwork. You know, whether it's the PTAs or running bookstores, they had their own bookstores, right? They had a kind of alternative universe of facts, of education, of ideas about what was constitutional and what was moral. Women in particular, as I argue, in one of my chapters and in the book as a whole, were sort of the Birch Society's most powerful, most effective, and least heralded teachers.
1: To bring his history of the John Birch Society to life, Dalek went deep into media coverage of the battles playing out over schools, libraries, and theaters, and he did tons of archival research. He also drew on work by scholars in the communities themselves, like historian Kristen Gates' account of the Birchers' effort to take over a school district in southwestern Montana.
0: What happened was the Birch Society in Montana in the Bitterroot Valley, there were, you know, I think a couple chapters. It wasn't like a massive, uh, you know, group of, of birchers, but they got wind of a story whereby a superintendent of the school district had burned these old Bibles because he just wanted to get rid of them. You know, it wasn't malicious. He just needed a way to get rid of them. A local pastor said, you know, it's fine to do. Anyways, the Berchers really got upset at that. They started to protest. They kind of targeted the schools and the district. They didn't like what was being taught there as well. They wanted to set up a committee to vet some of the textbooks, the social studies textbooks, I think, in particular, to ensure that these were Americanist texts as they defined them, that they did not contain progressive ideas. Again, from their vantage point. And according to this report the Birchers trashed, I think, the home of a principal. Um, You know, some of their tactics were really underhanded and, I mean, not just aggressive, but belligerent.
1: And while their numbers may have been small, that tactic of sowing chaos would prove highly effective. Another lesson with a lot of relevance for today
0: number of teachers resigned within a few years, either the principal or superintendent resigned. There was real fallout, regardless of whether they were able to get the textbooks changed in the schools. There was significant fallout. And just to broaden out the story, I think what happened then and what sometimes happens now is that, you know, the PTAs and the school boards and even the field of public education are seen as almost places where citizens go to contribute. Sometimes they get paid, but it's sort of an obligation, right? You want a good school system. You want to support it. You know, there are volunteers. And people, I don't think, go into it anticipating that they're going to be the target of a vicious hate mail or shouting at meetings, you know, threats of violence. No one should, of course, experience that, but certainly not, you know, people who are running a PTA or a local school board.
1: The Washington Post recently did an investigation into the origins of the calls to ban books and found that the vast majority of complaints have been filed by just 11 people. You heard that right, 11 people. Well, that's another lesson that the Birchers learned first. Local democratic institutions are often highly susceptible to the bullying actions of just a small number of extremists
0: a handful of people who want to be belligerent and intimidate and be disruptive. It's fairly easy to do that. And you see it happening today with the Moms for Liberty and and some of these books that are being temporarily at least taken off shelves so that they can be reviewed and vetted and then maybe banned. You know, sometimes one or two people who's lodging a protest and setting in motion that chain of events. So, It's a disturbing thing, right, where, you know, a small number of people can really kind of bully, in a sense, institutions and individuals who are trying to do right by their communities.
1: So, Jack, I want to bring you back in. As it happens, when I was working on this episode, I came across a case study of the John Birch Society in Sarasota. And I cannot pretend that I just found this on my own. I found it because friend of the show, Catherine Joyce, had an excellent piece in Vanity Fair about how Sarasota has become a kind of laboratory for right-wing ideas, including in education right now. And she linked to this, this terrific history. I read it, and then, as I so often do, I sent it along to you. And so I'm hoping that you can just kind of bring to life for the listening audience, what was going on in in Sarasota back in the day with the John Birch Society?
2: All people really need to do in order to understand it is to take what's happening right now and then put people into old-timey clothing. So put a hat on every man and put every woman in a dress, get her out of her athleisure wear, and you more or less have the same situation. Uh, It wasn't just the John Birch Society. There were all sorts of homegrown organizations duking it out largely against the local PTA, uh, which they increasingly slandered with accusations of communism, uh, anti-Christianity, homosexuality. Uh, The the fundamentalists uh, basically applied that to anybody they didn't like. So at one point they found out that several school administrators were Unitarians, and so they accused uh, the school leaders in Sarasota of enacting a Unitarian conspiracy. Um, Which I'm pretty
1: sure is a complete contradiction there be such a thing as a Unitarian conspiracy. (laughs) Have you ever met a Unitarian? There's
2: a kind of beautiful irony to that. And they cooked up various committees like the Americanism Committee. They were very concerned with uh, what was in the textbooks. Of course, there was nothing actually incriminating in the textbooks. So that led them to seek the firing of various administrators when they... Had those administrators removed, of course those folks were replaced by other competent professionals, which did not satisfy the folks who had been seeking their ouster. And really this thing didn't burn itself out for five or six years. And there are various explanations offered. People became distracted by the Vietnam War and something new to argue about. Um, You know, there was also the idea that Uh, The right had actually achieved a number of victories there, but it hadn't led to anything substantive, right? They had conducted their witch hunts, and still, there wasn't a kind of obvious transition to an extremely patriotic curriculum. I thought the most compelling explanation was that there really were only a couple of dozen actual true believers here who had extreme views, who really fully bought into the conspiracies that they were peddling, and that actually the thing that they succeeded in doing was allowing moderate Republicans to take over politically in Sarasota, but that those moderates really didn't have any taste for the kind of far-right revolution that that small number of people... Uh, who were really at the kind of far right vanguard were seeking to advance.
1: I think my favorite detail from that case study was that the principal was suspicious because he played, uh, he liked jazz. And he was, so no, he
2: played the jazz trumpet, which in itself is leftist, they said.
1: Back to Matthew Dalek in his must-read book, one of the things that's so unsettling about the story he tells is the sense that you could just replace the word communism or socialism in the book with woke or transgender, and you'd be reading about the present. Long before today's hard-right culture warriors started calling everyone a groomer, the Birchers were calling out communists, and Dalek says that was a tactic that proved highly effective.
0: Well, one of the insights that they had is that by labeling opponents inside the United States communists or communist sympathizers, you can mobilize some Americans to get active in the struggle for power. And it was a great catch-all because it included fights over morality in the schools and libraries and bookstores, as we're talking about, and the media. It included isolationism and an assault on the United Nations and international institutions, It included a critique of the New Deal and the federal government. And it included a more explicit form of racism, ultimately, that, you know, without saying I'm a white supremacist, it's a way of saying, look, Martin Luther King, civil rights, that's a plot directed by the Kremlin. So it's not quite the KKK, but the KKK certainly adopted some of those same conspiratorial ideas and racist ideas. And ultimately, it's a more apocalyptic, anti-establishment mode of politics. And that was, I think, a powerful insight that they had. And those ideas and that style that I just discussed, I argue, lived on, right? It had an afterlife. And so the last part of the book is really about the afterlife of those ideas, those tactics, what happens to them. And one of the reasons I say Birchers were influential and powerful is that they bequeathed a legacy to their successors. And their successors were cannier. They were more politically engaged in some ways in partisan politics, and they picked up on these ideas and they ran with them. And ultimately, around, you know, 2010s, they started to become the center of the conservative movement.
1: We've been talking throughout this episode about the influence of the John Birch Society, what Dalek describes as the long afterlife of the group, its ideas, and its tactics. But of course, there's a reason why you don't hear much about them these days. The Birchers faded from view, in part because people and organizations pushed back. And that is another key lesson for us to consider now.
0: There are ways in which institutions, democratic institutions and individuals, do push back and constrain the far right. It's a very different time, of course. There was obviously no social media then. The mass media was more influential as a kind of arbiter of the truth. Faith in institutions had not yet plummeted in the way that that it has now. Even though conspiracy theories were big back then, it was not as easy to spread them as it is today. And there are other differences, but there are ways in which at that time, a liberal coalition which included moderate Republicans and the NAACP, institutions that were powerful, the White House, government agencies, attorneys general, the Anti-Defamation League. They ultimately, I think, succeed at branding the Birchers as a kind of dirty word in American politics, right, as an epithet, a political slur. And then the other thing is that the Birchers, by the late 60s, they're becoming more and more radical and more and more conspiratorial, more violent, more bigoted. And I think they they kind of burn themselves out, too.
1: Birchers, of course, is also the story of how the John Birch Society radicalized the American right, paving the way for the insurgent groups that would topple the GOP establishment, ushering in our current era of scorched earth politics.
0: You know, the Birchers helped to forge this alternative political tradition on the far right. They challenged mainstream conservatives, even as they were part of that coalition. They hated the Bushes, the Bob Dole's of the world, right? And even Reagan, you know, as one Bircher said, true Birchers never trusted Ronald Reagan. And so I try to capture that division, those tensions. But that, you know, Republican leaders, conservative leaders, they needed the money energy, and votes of the fringe, but not the taint. And so they did this delicate dance with them. And it was a choice that they made. They didn't have to make that choice, but over decades was part of this electoral coalition. The fringe also got frustrated that their issues were not getting implemented into law. And ultimately, you know, as we see with the Tea Party and with Trump, the fringe engulfs the Republican Party, even though I think there's still obviously divisions among Republicans.
1: In other words, the Birchers lost in the short term as communities banded together and rejected their brand of extremism. And yet, in many ways, they ended up succeeding in the long term. So what does that tell us about the state of the right today? Dalek says one key difference is that the issues that the right is rallying around now have considerably more support among Republican voters than the Bircher's brand of anti-communism ever did. Of course, there are some exceptions.
0: Anti-communism as Birchers and Joe McCarthy before the Birch Society defined it as a conspiracy inside the United States among traitors or communist sympathizers to overthrow the Constitution and overthrow the United States from within. That I think was a very much a minority viewpoint. And actually, you know, according to Gallup polls, two to eight percent of Americans supported the group. In terms of what's happened now, I do think that on some of the issues that the far-right, DeSantis, the Moms for Liberty groups, and others have really exploited and used around, you know, the woke, I think that that does have more traction now. I think it is more popular. It depends on the issue that we're talking about. It's certainly more popular, I think, within the Republican Party. And it has, I think, a lot more salience for probably a majority of Republican voters, but book bans even I saw a poll today that said half of Republicans are opposed to book bans. So the idea that all of these kind of hardline culture war issues that the far right is pushing, the idea that these have majority popular support in the country, I just don't I don't see much evidence for it. But I do think they're substantially more popular than they were even back then, which is why we're seeing Trump and DeSantis and election deniers, and those kinds of of folks get power in the country.
1: Which brings us to a question that always looms large for me when I read a history like this that sheds such light upon the present. Do the inheritors of the John Birch Society's legacy know this history? Dalek says that he was, let's just say, somewhat startled to find out that none other than Steve Bannon counts himself as a big fan of the book and its lessons.
0: Bannon actually, much to my surprise, he said really positive things about the book. He said, this is an incredible book. It's detailed analysis. I really like this book. He said, it's really anti-MAGA, anti-Patriot, but I like it. And <laughs> He found in part at least a blueprint for what he's been doing in the book, but also the idea of like the far right overthrowing the establishment, the mainstream conservatives. I think he, that probably resonated with him as well.
1: Bannon's guest on that episode, by the way, was the co-founder of, wait for it, Moms for Liberty.
0: Bannon held up the book and he says to the one of the founders of the Moms for Liberty, he says, you know, you're doing a great job. You've got all these liberals going crazy. They're on the run. I mean, I'm sort of a synopsis. And he says, but come on, like they're calling you birchers. You're not a bircher. And her response was really interesting. She said, that's absurd. Of course, we're not birchers. We are our own unique group. Do some of our ideas resemble the Birchers? Sure. Do we share a view of the Constitution? And so the implication actually was that, yeah, you know, some of our positions are the same, but we're not Birchers. And that's kind of the argument of the book, right? That it's not that there's a one for one kind of the Birchers are suddenly transported into 2023, but that the ideas had an afterlife and the tactics had an afterlife,
1: That was Matthew Dalek. He's the author of the eye-opening, enraging, and essential new book Birchers, how the john birch society radicalized the american right and jack and i will be right back to discuss some of the overlap between conspiracists past and present and we'll also be revealing the topic of this episodes in the weed segment for our patreon supporters here's a hint religious charter schools what could go wrong if this intrigues you just go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and become a supporter So Jack, I think that in many ways, the history we've been hearing about is reassuring that we can identify various sort of common elements and predict how the influence of today's um, sort of inheritors of the Birch Society, how, how their influence is going to wane as they get more and more extreme. But I think the thing that's worrisome in all of this is that despite the fact that they never had great numbers, um, the fact that, you know, we when we looked at Sarasota, there were only like 25 people who were the, you know, the actual uh, people who were shouting that, you know they do manage to have a lot of influence both in sowing chaos but also in forcing debates on questions of morality that i think people had regarded as settled and you really feel that right now think about all the debates that are swirling about the role that companies should play in celebrating Pride for example, right? Like I saw yesterday that Starbucks has sort of, you know, like taken the preemptory step of removing pride displays from its stores because it doesn't want to be caught up in in sort of the the vitriol. It doesn't want to be targeted. And so you can see how the sort of the the debate is moving. Um, And they are succeeding in rolling back the clock, even though their numbers are small. Even as, you know, we pointed out again and again, both on this show, and certainly I have in my writing, that the, you know, the political influence of groups like Moms for Liberty, say, is, you know, is not nearly as much as you would think, given the number of headlines that they command.
2: I think it's important to think of radical groups, whatever side they're on, whatever issues they're concerned with, as playing a functional role in normalizing ideas and rhetoric that might previously have seemed radical, but which placed on a new spectrum that has new endpoints due to the advocacy of radicals, now doesn't seem so extreme at all, right? Another way of framing that is to say that if you pull the entire conversation further right, and it could also be further left, then you pull the center with you as well. And we then need to understand the importance of extremists as being much larger than their actual number because what they can do is they can create a new center where there actually is a critical mass, and that creates policy opportunities And this is, again, it's true of both the left and the right. And what it means is that you can't actually dismiss radical movements even if they have small membership because, again, what they're doing is they're opening policy windows for ideas that had previously been viewed as extreme but which are now going to seem pretty tempered in relation to the kind of new extreme that's being offered.
1: I think that's such a good point. And the other thing that I really took away from Matt's excellent book and I hope that people will purchase it and read it is just how much the Birch Society and its members benefited from the perception that they were being persecuted and I thought of that recently with the decision by the Southern Poverty Law Center to declare Moms for Liberty um, an extremist group, right, that that I've been tracking as their, I really feel like they are losing influence. Um, the, we were talking about Sarasota earlier but you know it was the mayor of Jacksonville um, campaigning with Moms for Liberty that played a big role in him losing to a Democrat, right? Like that was a big deal. Um, but so the, as soon as the Southern Poverty Law Center did that, Moms for Liberty in that extended orbit that you were just talking about is able to don the mantle of persecution. And that's the sort of lesson that I think we can really learn from a history like the one we've been discussing
2: a moment ago, I was saying that you shouldn't dismiss groups, even if they have small membership, because they can you know, change what people view as being normal or reasonable talk, policies, ideas. But of course, some of these groups do have numbers, right? They've got real numbers to turn people out and win elections or at least influence whatever the mainstream of the party uh, ideology is. And I think If we look at Moms for Liberty and the parallel with the John Birch Society, the thing that strikes me is that both of them seem like multi-level marketing organizations, right? In the same way that Cutco gets you to buy a knife because your nephew showed up on your door trying to sell it to you, right? Or that Avon uh, has made billions by getting people to sell makeup to their neighbors, that the John Birch Society expanded now it never hit huge numbers but it expanded and became influential not just because they had a radical message that pulled normalcy further right with them right it also expanded because they had a pretty good recipe for selling knives door to door except it wasn't knives right it was a kind of far right anti-communist conspiracy theory laden political ideology and It grew because there were some key things that you could say to your neighbors, right? That was a part of how they pitched the John Birch Society around specific pamphlets, books, films that you would show to people. And instead of offering them a deal, what you were offering them was a kind of insight that they wouldn't have had access to otherwise, Right. It was a special opportunity to learn about who really was pulling the strings of American politics. Right, It, it wasn't the Congress. It wasn't even the president. Right, It was the World Bank and the United Nations. Uh, it was you know, communist sympathizers who had infiltrated the deep state. And we definitely see this today with some of these far-right groups. And in labeling them hate organizations, right, or in legitimizing the kind of political influence they have, what you're doing then is instead of saying, these are really tiny organizations with very few members, you're actually giving them marketing material in order to go out and do more recruiting for this multi-level marketing scam that they're engaged in. And, And it is a scam because what they're peddling is falsehood right? They're peddling conspiracy theories rooted in untruths. But it's not actually doing a whole heck of a lot to say, these are extremist organizations, right? They're very dangerous politically. That's exactly what they want you to say. They want you to say, these are dangerous organizations so that they can then go door to door and say, hey, the left has called us dangerous. Do you want in?
1: Well, Jack, speaking of marketing, it's that special time (laughs) in the show. (laughs) Maybe my best segue ever. Yeah, that was good. every episode we offer a special area that we like to call In the Weeds for our Patreon subscribers and we go in there and we hold forth on some topic and today's has three words. Jack, do you want to guess what they are?
2: Multi-level marketing.
1: Religious charter schools. I was close. You we're pretty close. If this topic intrigues you, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash podcast and become a supporter. Just by throwing a few dollars our way each month, you get to come with us into our custom area called The Weeds. You get a special reading list. And if you subscribe at the $10 per month level, you get a free copy of our book, A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, with its new preface.
2: How long are we going to keep pitching it as a new preface?
1: I think that might be, this might be the last time. Okay, all right. So get in now, folks.
2: For those of you who want to join a conspiracy-minded, multi-level marketing scheme, uh, the Conspirators Circle is open, uh, and you don't need to pay anything as long as you recruit 10 people to join at $10 a month. So if you're interested in that, um, we'll be holding our first meeting and we'll be talking about the Illuminati.
1: I don't even know how to respond to that.
2: You just say, thanks for listening.
1: Aren't you going to say something about sharing the episode?
2: Well, I was going to do that in the Illuminati conversation, but sure, for those of you who don't want to join the Conspirators Circle, there are lots of ways to support the show. Go on, give us a rating, a review, make sure that you're a subscriber so the latest episode appears in your feed. And of course, the best way to help the show grow is to tell folks who you think would enjoy it to go ahead and take a listen either to the latest episode or to your favorite episode.
1: Thank you for that, Jack. Very concise. On that note, I'm Jennifer Berkshire.
2: And I'm Jack Schneider.
1: This is Have You Heard.